the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast, Earthly Powers, Part 1. Who is Kenneth Toomey? Earthly Powers is Anthony Burgess's longest and most accomplished novel. It was first published in 1980, and the Burgess Foundation is releasing a new series of podcasts to mark its 40th anniversary. Set over the course of the 20th century, Earthly Powers tells the story of Kenneth Marshall Toomey, an internationally renowned writer. His story brushes up against established history, the global influenza pandemic of 1918, the brutality of Nazi Germany, the rise of the Hollywood studio system, and the exploitative American cults that came to prominence in the 1970s. He also meets celebrated figures of the era, including Ernest Hemingway, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, and Ford Maddox Ford. At the core of this story is Toomey's friendship with his sister's brother-in-law, the corpulent priest Carlo Campanati, a man of large appetites and a desire to reform the Catholic Church. Earthly Powers is a novel that challenges orthodox definitions of sin, complicates the dichotomy of good and evil, and gives insight into the life of a man struggling to reconcile his Catholic upbringing with his rationalism and his sexuality. It was the afternoon of my 81st birthday and I was in bed with my catamite when Ali announced that the Archbishop had come to see me. It is with this opening line, an explosion of camp consciously imitating the style of Ronald Furbank, that we are introduced to Toomey. In one sentence, it tells us much about our protagonist. He is living in exile, a palatial house in Malta where he has retired from his trade of novel writing and spends his days drinking with his live-in, though lazy, secretary Geoffrey. The Archbishop's visit is to invite him to vouch for Carlo's suitability for sainthood. This spurs Toomey to reminisce, and we get to know one of Anthony Burgess's most complex and developed characters. But who is Kenneth Toomey? In an article about the writing of Earthly Powers, Burgess describes Toomey as an ageing homosexual writer based on William Somerset Maugham. That Burgess would use Maugham as a model for Toomey should come as little surprise. When he was writing the novel, Maugham had recently been outed as gay by his nephew Robin in the book Somerset and All the Maugham's. But there are also many parallels between Burgess's life and interests and Maugham's. Maugham was, arguably, the most famous writer of his generation, and he became very wealthy from his work in fiction, theatre and film. Burgess experienced a level of fame that was unusual for most writers, appearing regularly on television and in the press, and he divided his work over the same media as Maugham. Maugham was also an international figure, visiting at various times France, Germany, Russia, the United States, Africa, India, the Caribbean, and perhaps most relevantly to Burgess, Malaya. It's possible that Burgess saw a kindred spirit on which to mould Toomey. Maugham also used to base his fictional characters on real people, 
something Burgess noticed in his introduction to an edition of Maugham's Malayan short stories. It is typical of Maugham that he should base a novel on a real person. Cakes and Ale is based on real figures from the world of literature, and Of Human Bondage, his longest novel, is a retelling of his own early life, though a limp is substituted for a stammer. Admittedly, all his books contain a good deal of invention, but his cult of naturalism or realism led him to portray the real world rather than the imaginary one. Like Maugham, Toomey is portrayed as a successful novelist who is looked down upon by the writers and critics of the modernist movement. Writers such as Edmund Wilson and Joseph Conrad deemed Maugham second-rate, and he was shunned by the Bloomsbury set. Toomey describes his own prose as sedative and exciting with no hint of the subversive. Writing about Maugham's style, Burgess says that his seeming artlessness was a very considerable art, starting as a reaction against Victorian opulence, refined, in the time of his maturity, till it became a supple and economical instrument closer to Maupassant than to Henry James. Maugham found literary fame with Liza of Lambeth in 1897, a novel which emerged from the time Maugham spent as a medical student in London. The novel was deemed rather scandalous because of its unfiltered depictions of London's underclass. It did not receive particularly good reviews, variously being called emphatically unpleasing and dirty, with one reviewer saying that he felt as if he had taken a mud bath in all the filth of a London street. Yet it became a bestseller, and Maugham's popularity led to a lucrative period when he wrote plays for the London stage. There seems to be some parallels between the facts of Maugham's biography and the fictional career of Kenneth Toomey in Earthly Powers. How ironic it was that the small reputation I had so far made for myself had begun with the publication of a novel considered heterosexually assertive, also daring, even scandalous. This was, as some of you may know, Once Departed, published by Martin Secker, three printings of 1,500 each, with 4,000 sets of sheets sold to the United States. Toomey follows Maugham in using his initial literary success to build a career as a playwright, writing light musical comedy plays with titles such as Parlez-vous and Say It Cecil. Maugham describes his own plays as being written to fit with what theatre managers were looking for. Evidently a comedy, for the public wished to laugh, with as much drama as it would carry, for the public liked to thrill, with a little sentiment, for the public liked to feel good and a happy ending. Maugham characterised his plays as farces, yet they had an undercurrent of drama, particularly those dealing with the events surrounding the First World War, such as Home and Beauty. Burgess clearly used Maugham's success in the theatre when it came to breathing a career into Toomey, but though Maugham had four plays running simultaneously in the West End in 1908, Toomey is depicted as a less enthusiastic playwright. I was already working on a new comedy as Christmas approached. 
Willie Maugham had had in 1908 four plays running in London at the same time, prompting a Bernard Partridge cartoon in Punch that showed Will Shakespeare not too happy about his namesake's success. I was not so ambitious. I still regarded myself as a novelist making plays somewhat cynically for money, and three plays, for the time being anyway, would be quite enough. Maugham may have been Burgess's original model for Toomey's theatrical success, but it's clear when reading the brief descriptions of his plays in Earthly Powers that Burgess was also thinking of Noel Coward. Toomey's plays are described as drawing-room musical comedies that deal with the affairs and social lives of the upper middle class, replete with jazzy and sentimental songs. Burgess's relationship with the work of Noel Coward began when he was at university in Manchester, where he recalls seeing Operette at the Opera House. In his autobiography, he describes Coward, who tried out his new plays in Manchester before they transferred to London, as Manchester's king. He goes on to say, Coward approved of Manchester, at the French restaurant at the Midland Hotel, of quiet assassinations which London could not gossip about, of rock-hard Manchester taste, which only genuine wit, pathos and melody could pierce. Manchester called Coward the master before London did. Burgess also reviewed Coward's play Present Laughter in The Spectator in 1965, and the collections at the Burgess Foundation have several biographies of Coward and vinyl records of his music, suggesting that Burgess's interest lasted throughout his lifetime. Toomey's connection to Coward is made explicit later in Earthly Powers, when he is hired to write a play for the Keepers, three fictional siblings who are both performers and producers of plays by Coward and Maugham. These plays, Liberty Measles and A Pig in a Poke respectively, are also fictional, but they give a strong impression of the world that Toomey's own theatrical writing is supposed to inhabit. From his early beginnings in the theatre, Toomey's career mirrors Maugham's in other ways. Perhaps the most obvious parallel is both writers' experiences of colonial Malaya. I took the night train to Kuala Lumpur, the muddy estuary, and stayed at the station hotel for three days. I picked up materials for the smoking Sikh, little Eleanor, and without a tie the tale of a man who tried to get in the Selangor Club without a tie. Then I went to Ipoh, the tin town, chief city of the state of Perak, whose name means silver or tin. And there a visit to Kuala Kangsar was recommended to me, the royal town at the junction of the rivers Perak and Kangsar. In Kuala Kangsar I met, if I may be permitted, the novelettish locution, my love. Maugham first visited Malaya in the spring of 1921, part of an extended tour around the Far East which began in 1919. His main experience of Malaya was in Kuala Lumpur, where the exoticism was cut with a staunch Britishness. Like Toomey, he frequented the Selangor Club, 
a mock Tudor building nicknamed the Spotted Dog Pub by the colonial Brits who went there to drink strong gin and bitters known as parhits and watch cricket matches on the grounds. Morm's Malaya was primarily inhabited by Europeans, and he rarely came into contact with the native people unless they were serving drinks in the club or undertaking other labours of hospitality. Burgess explains this in his introduction to Morm's Malayan short stories. The forefront of the stage was monopolised by the men who ruled these territories, whether as colonial office civil servants or as state managers. A visitor like Morm would talk and eat with these people and their wives, and the Malays and Chinese would merely bring drinks and serve dinner. Morm cannot be blamed for making his story centre on these expatriate Europeans, since they were the only people he could really get to know. There are exceptions. The Malay woman in P&O, for instance, and the Chinese clerk in the letter. But these characters are not as fully drawn as the European characters who provide the substance of the story. If Morm had started writing in, say, 1954, his plots and main characters might have been very different. Burgess has not picked the year 1954 as a random example. This is the year he first went to Malaya as a colonial education officer, just three years before Malaya was declared independent in 1957. It was also the year he began work on Time for a Tiger, the first volume of his Malayan trilogy. Burgess draws on his own knowledge of Malaya to make a fictional reconstruction of the place Morm would have known before the Second World War. Kuala Lumpur is not the location of the action in Earthly Powers, but Kuala Kangsar, the town in which Burgess was stationed at Malay College. We first see Toomey socialising with the expatriate Brits at the Colonial Club, as Morm did when he travelled to the east. But the action soon shifts to the kampongs or villages that surround the town, and Toomey begins socialising with the native Malays, as Burgess did. In Kuala Kangsar, Toomey meets Dr Philip Shawcross, who treats the locals for leprosy at the hospital, and is Toomey's guide to the native Malays. His patients react to his care in very specific ways. Then one day one of them said to me, Bengali he was, you know, Dr Shawcross, I despise you. That gave me a shock, I can tell you, but why? Because, he said, you lower yourself by drinking with people like me. In Little Wilson and Big God, Burgess recalls being told he was despicable by a Tamil for the same reasons. In Malaya, Burgess and his wife Lynn strove to experience life away from the crumbling facade of British civility, both of them engaging in relationships romantic and otherwise, with the local population. Burgess was also keen to learn the multiple languages spoken in Malaya, while it was not a high priority for Morm, who only learnt a few words. Toomey's experience of Malaya falls between these two points, never quite fitting with the idea of the colonial British and gaining a wide grasp of Malay, but also never quite comfortable with the world of the Malays which to Toomey is shrouded in a mysterious and dangerous magic. 
When Philip is cursed by a local Tamil Pawang, or shaman, named Mr. Mahalingam, and falls ill, Carlo Campanati arrives to diagnose the illness as witchcraft. Tumi is uneasy with Carlo's desire to use his priestly powers to exorcise Mahalingam and to save Philip. I was not a Malay about to beg a village Pawang to deflect his aim. I belong to the world of reason. The magic nonsense could be explained away in terms of suggestibility. Carlo did not belong to the world of reason. I had no faith in him, after all. In painting Toomey as a rationalist in the face of the mysteries of Malaya, Burgess diverges slightly from his own experience. In his autobiography, he associates Malaya with ghosts, superstitions and dark magic, remembering an encounter with a magician who attempts to seduce his wife, Lynn. This perhaps suggests that Burgess was not able to fully purge his colonial mindset, even as he criticises these impulses in Morm. If Toomey's time in Malaya blends the experiences of both Morm and Burgess, there are other aspects of his character that are drawn exclusively from Burgess's own life. Toomey inhabits Burgess's physical world, most obviously the places he lives. His house in Malta, on Main Street in Leger, is the house Burgess lived in from 1968 until 1970. It was temporarily confiscated by the Maltese government in 1974, a fate that befalls Toomey in the novel. Toomey's first flat in London is at 22 Barons Court Road and is the same flat occupied by Burgess's first wife, Lynn, during the Second World War. And for a period, Toomey lives in a top-floor apartment on Rue Grimaldi in Monte Carlo, the same apartment that Burgess occupied from 1975 until the end of his life. Toomey also visits places such as Gibraltar, where Burgess served in the Second World War, Rome, where Burgess lived in the 1970s, and the United States, which Burgess knew well from his extensive lecture tours and dealings with the Hollywood studios. Early in the novel, Toomey is revealed to have a collection of matchbooks he acquired on his travels. This collection is real, and it is now part of the Burgess Foundation's archive in Manchester. Burgess, a lifelong smoker, had matchbooks from all over the world, including from a restaurant called Le Grand Seine in Washington, D.C. This is the matchbook Toomey selects to light his cigarette in the second chapter of the novel. Just as Toomey considers writing a travel book based on drawing matchbooks at random out of a bowl, Burgess has constructed earthly powers on memories of his own travels. This is just one piece of evidence that Burgess is drawing Toomey from his own life and experiences in a book that is littered with little autobiographical details. Yet it is not only the places of Burgess's life that provided him with inspiration, but also his many preoccupations. Earthly powers can be seen as a culmination of the themes and ideas Burgess had been working on throughout his career in fiction. Toomey embodies the core theme of the novel, the conflict between sin, free will and religious faith. The Catholic Church brands him a sinner because of his sexuality, and in turn he renounces his faith. Toomey also believes that God created him gay and cannot reconcile this with the teachings of the church.
I did not will myself into being the way I am. From puberty on, I was driven away from what the world and the church would call the sexual norm. Of course, I've prayed. Prayed to be attracted to what I find distasteful. Prayed even sometimes to be led into the carnal sins of the norm. So who is Kenneth Marshall Toomey? In a novel populated by characters from the real world, such as Ernest Hemingway, Havelock Ellis, Ford Maddox Ford and Heinrich Himmler, it is important that Toomey is grounded in this reality. The main foundation of Toomey's biography is Somerset Maugham, a writer whose success and celebrity allowed him to move freely around the world, settling in comfort on the Mediterranean. But for readers who have knowledge of Burgess's biography, it's possible to identify meanings and personal references which would have been invisible to the novel's first readers in 1980. Now that we know more about Burgess the man, this autobiographical subtext becomes easier to recognise. It gives Toomey his character, and it allows Toomey to occupy an authentic environment, and helps Burgess to develop the thematic foundations of a novel that will stand as his greatest statement in fiction. There were records. There had been witnesses. They could be found, consulted, though with trouble. But the real question for me was, how far could I claim true knowledge of the factuality of my own past, as opposed to pointing to an artistic enhancing of it, meaning a crafty falsification? In two ways, my memory was not to be trusted. I was an old man. I was a writer. The Earthly Powers podcast was written and narrated by Graham Foster. Readings were by Paul Barnhill. The music was by Anthony Burgess. For more information about the Earthly Powers 40th anniversary, visit www.anthonyburgess.org.